Tonight, straight from the source, the man who led a failed coup against Vladimir Putin, Yevgeny Prigozhin, was on a plane that crashed and burned today. He's believed to be dead, and there is wide speculation about what happened. Was it revenge? Plus, once known as America's mayor and a tough-on-crime federal prosecutor, Rudy Giuliani has been arrested, fingerprinted, and yes, there is a mugshot. But Giuliani says he hasn't changed a bit. His lawyer will join me tonight. In hours from now, it'll be Trump's turn. Why arrest number four, though, won't be like any of the others. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. Two months to the day after his march on Moscow, Russia has now confirmed that Yevgeny Prigozhin was on that private plane that fell out of the sky today, just northwest of the capital. A social media channel that is linked to the Wagner Group, which Prigozhin led, says that he is dead. The pictures are harrowing. Flight tracking data shows the plane making erratic climbs above 30,000 feet and then descending at 8,000 feet per minute when it stopped transmitting its position. The video appears to show the plane missing a wing. There are still a lot of questions that remain tonight, though, including whether or not that plane was shot down. The jet ended up here in a ball of flames on the ground. Russian state media says at least eight bodies have been confirmed found at the crash site. Some were not surprised when they heard this news today, given Putin's history with those who cross him, including President Biden, who warned just last month that Prigozhin should be careful about what he was eating. This is what he told CNN's Kevin Liptak today. I don't know for a fact what happened, but I'm not surprised. Do you believe Putin is behind this, sir? There's not much that happens when Russia is not behind, but I don't know enough to know the answer. White House officials are still asking questions tonight, though. And as the news broke that Putin's former ally turned enemy, the Russian leader was seen at an elaborate ceremony commemorating World War II. A reminder tonight, Prigozhin was a brutal warlord. He led some of the bloodiest crusades in Ukraine and elsewhere. He was also wanted by the FBI for interfering in U.S. elections. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh joins us live from Zaporizhia, Ukraine. Nick, obviously, you know, it's been two months since that coup just fascinated everyone. There were still questions about how active he was, how public he was with his movements. What is the latest that you're learning from sources on the crash? Yeah, it's important to point out, Caitlin, that we don't still have definitive evidence that Evgeny Prigozhin did indeed die in that crash. The information received is a beginning to suggest that is the most likely outcome, but it's mostly from Russian state sources that, of course, will be distributing what is favourable to Vladimir Putin, the man who essentially Prigozhin crossed in ways that Putin had never been crossed before during the failed armed rebellion exactly two months ago. Prigozhin led Wagner mercenaries from Rostov essentially against Russia's top brass, saying how angry they were at the conduct of the war here in Ukraine. But it turned into a much larger challenge against Putin himself. Essentially, a deal done by the Belarusian president turned Prigozhin around and meant that he was somehow now going to move his fighters to Belarus. He went quiet for a bit, and that's got many people wondering quite whether or not 
everything we're seeing here could be taken at face value. Prigozhin was not really known his whereabouts for about one or two weeks after that initial rebellion. He popped up last uh, in the last week or so in Africa, suggesting perhaps he might be uh, focusing on his Wagner Group's operations there, often involved in mining, propping up dictatorships there. Uh, but still, the images, many watching in Russia, of that plane harrowingly falling from the sky leave many wondering exactly how this could possibly have occurred. And also, two questioning, there appear to have been many Wagner top lieutenants on that plane as well, according to the list given out by Russian uh, state aviation authorities. And you may be asking yourself, well, how did these men, so soon after the coup, feel so free of threats, so safe in Russia already? They all decided to get on the same private jet and fly uh, across Russia. Another question to be asked here as well, but it does look at this point from most of the signals we're getting uh, that Yevgeny Prigozhin is no more. Well, given given that Russia is the one conducting this investigation and we still have all those questions that you that you laid out there, I mean, will we ever get a real answer about what happened here? Yeah, it's going to be exceptionally tough. We may at some point hear from the Wagner group or Wagner supporters that they believe Evgeny Prigozhin is dead. Uh, but fundamentally, this is a man whose whereabouts, as I say, he toyed with an awful lot. After the coup, there were images of someone looking like him getting on and off a helicopter in St. Petersburg. His... Uh, Actions, frankly, the entire Wagner group were occurring in the shadows until just very recently indeed. And so for Western investigators, being at a crash scene as horrific as that that you've seen uh, from the wreckage of the plane that fell out of the sky, it would be a challenge for them, frankly, often to piece together from the remains their DNA enough to be absolutely sure uh, who had been on that plane. What we do know is the passenger list said he should have been there, that Russian state aviation said he did indeed get on that plane. Uh, and so for the most part, there will always be some element of mystery, potentially, because well, frankly, that is where Putin's Russia functions, where the information is often in the hands uh, of the state. No exception here. And also, it's important to point out, Prigozhin was a man who had crossed Putin in ways Putin had never seen in the 23 years he'd been in power. And many were simply asking, how is he being allowed to continue circulating within the Russian elite in public? How is he even still alive? Well, maybe the answer has been delivered today. We do not know at all how this came around. But as you say, you heard President Biden there and many other observers of Putin. None of this really came as a surprise. Caitlin? Nick Payton Walsh, thank you. Yevgeny Prigozhin lived in the shadows on three continents. His life, though, ended in flames just outside of Moscow. Let's get straight to the source tonight with one of the few people alive who knows what it is like to live as an enemy of Vladimir Putin's. Bill Browder was once the largest foreign investor in Russia before the Kremlin decided that he was a threat. And he joins me now. Bill, uh, it's not a staircase. It's not a window. It's not poison in someone's underwear. But given Putin's history, is there any doubt in your mind tonight that he is behind this? Absolutely no doubt that he is behind this. Putin is a man who never forgives and never forgets. Uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin uh, uh, basically betrayed him. He was unloyal, disloyal. Um, he organized a rebellion. Uh, and Putin absolutely can't allow that to go on because if he does, then other people will get the same idea. And Putin has ruled for 23 years as a strong man, as a dictator. And, and Prigozhin made him look weak. And, and so this is what happens um, when you make Putin look weak. Are you more surprised 
that it, that it has been two months since that rebellion Prigozhin led happened? Um, it's absolutely crazy that Putin has allowed him to live for two months. One would expect if you're a ruthless dictator and somebody um, uh, organized a rebellion and you called him a traitor on television on the day of the rebellion, that 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 guy would be app- the the, re- the rebel would be apprehended, taken to Red Square, his head put in a guillotine, and have it chopped off the next day. And the fact that Prigozhin didn't have his head chopped off, and in fact he had tea with Putin and the Kremlin, he was um, greeting African dictators at the Russia Africa summit. He's been flying all over the world, apparently unimpeded. It, every one of those days made uh, you know Putin look look like a weakling, look look not like a strong dictator. And so the fact that he waited for two months, is, is that's the biggest surprise of this whole story. Yeah. Speaking of, of looking weak, I mean, after that rebellion initially happened, you said that you did believe he'd have to do something to reassert his authority, or you believed that Putin was, the quote I believe you had at the time was he was a dead man walking. I mean, is this him reasserting his authority? If it's two months later, does it, does it still work, you think? Yep, it works perfectly. So um, uh, from this day on, anybody who's thinking about challenging Putin understands that the, the consequence could be death in a terrible way. Um, and by the way, I don't think this is the end of the story. I, I think that Putin has begun the purge and there will be other people purged who are supporting Prigozhin or who weren't loyal enough to Putin during that rebellion. And um, and so this absolutely um, enforces his authority, and and that's what he was. That's what he's been attempting to do. And and uh, yes, two months have gone by, and that wasn't great for him. But now he's he's achieved the objective. So essentially, what you're saying is is if you're a Prigozhin ally, you're not sleeping well tonight. Uh, I'm sure that um, some of them are already dead. We just haven't heard of it. Other ones are on the run in hiding, and 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 many people will be purged. Will either be killed or locked up for a very long time. That's so- the way dictators work. Putin is a dictator, and I'm sure that, that that's what's happening as we speak. Well, and Russia is doing you know, an investigation, but if this is up to Russia's investigators, do you think we'll ever really know what happened with this plane crash today? Um, I, I think we will know what happened because um, for a variety of reasons. One is that there's lots of open source intelligence about what happened. There, There's flight uh, plans, radar, all sorts of other t- stuff like that. And then there's just a very leaky um, information uh, market out there in Moscow, and there are people fighting with each other, and there's uh, lots of ways of getting information. So I'm pretty sure that we'll find out exactly what's happened. And part of the reason that the Russia says we're doing an investigation is they want to be able to sort of talk out of both sides of their mouths. On one hand, they want to say um, uh, this was a accident, or they'll come up with some some type of absurd uh, conclusion. And on the other side of their mouth, they want to like look everybody in the eye and say this is what happens to traitors. Um, but they, they don't want an official version of admitting that they killed him because there's legal consequences to that. You yourself have faced threats, as I mentioned, from the Kremlin. I mean, you wrote in your book that you assumed there was a good chance that he or his regime would have you killed someday. I mean, when you look at the big picture of this, how are you reflecting on this tonight? Well, I mean, uh, I, I've been reflecting on it and saying to myself that Putin never forgives and never forgets. and. Um, he's he and I have been at it for 13 years. I'm no longer the number one enemy of Vladimir Putin. I think Zelensky is. I think Navalny is. I think Prigozhin was. Um, but I'm high up on the list, and it means that no matter how much time has passed, he could be 
sending people to get me. And, and um, it's not, the world's not a safe place for me either. I mean, just to hear you say that is, is really remarkable. I mean, do you live in fear? Well, I, I, you can't spend, you know, decades living in fear, but I have to be very careful because um, when you have a, a, a man who's capable of murdering people on his own, in his own country and on foreign soil, you've got to be much more vigilant. And so I've got to take all sorts of precautions that most normal people who live normal lives don't have to take. But uh, I have good reason for being in conflict with Putin because he killed my lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, 13 years ago um, in a financial crime in which he was a beneficiary of. And um, Sergei died at the age of 37, and I owe it to him to, to continue to fight for justice and to expose Putin in his regime. And I'm not going to back down, but the risk is high, no question. And you have continued to do that. Bill Browder, thank you. The book, of course, for those interested, it's Freezing Order, a true story of money laundering, murder, and surviving Vladimir Putin's wrath. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. And we have seen what happens when Putin feels betrayed, as he would put it. Some have mysteriously fallen out of windows or just disappeared off the face of the earth. Others had their underwear laced with poison and barely survived. We have an expert on his playbook. Also, an extraordinary scene outside the Fulton County Jail as the former mayor of New York City, Rudy Giuliani, turns himself in to be arrested. His lawyer, who is there with him, will join me next. How does it feel to be on the other side of the justice system? Sorry, don't interrupt me. I'm making a statement. Several top U.S. officials indicated months ago they thought something like this would happen to Yevgeny Prigozhin. Maybe they didn't know exactly what, but the predictions were there from the CIA director. I think Putin is someone who generally thinks that revenge is a dish best served cold. Secretary of State. If I were Mr. Prigozhin, I would remain very concerned. Um, NATO has an open door policy. Russia has an open windows policy. Even President Biden himself. If I were he, I'd be careful what I ate. I'd be uh, keeping my eye on my menu. Masha Gessen writes for The New Yorker and has written many books on Russia and Putin and also spent time on the ground reporting on how ordinary and everyday Russians view the Russian leader. Masha, thank you for joining me. I mean, it has been two months to the day since Prigozhin started his coup. I mean, did you did you think this day was inevitable? Yes. And in this sense, I'm I'm not original. I think I think many of us who know how Russia functions, how the Kremlin functions, knew that Prigozhin was a dead man. I mean, given that, given it seems so inevitable, if it if it did in fact happen, which, you know, there are some questions about that. I mean, why did it take so long, do you think? Well, that's actually a great question. And I'm not sure that it has anything to do with Putin believing that revenge is a dish best served cold. <laughs> he may or may not. Uh, we don't know that. What we do know is that he has a real love of appearing to be uh, sort of the bureaucrat's bureaucrat. Um, in his case, we know now he's a murderer, he's a genocidal bureaucrat, but there's always this kind of process, right? And um, and I was reminded actually of, of the Putin we saw 23 years ago when he was first in power in August of 2000 when the submarine Kursk sank. And... Um, and Putin 
talked about his ideas of leadership for the first time. And he was really talking about the presidency as, as a bureaucracy, right? And I think he still thinks that it's that. And so the two month pause, I think is meant to communicate that there's some kind of process, right? That, um, that, that they did something, they considered it, they maybe put it through the machine. None of that is true, right? but I think that the pause that Putin often takes uh, to do anything at all, part of it is a function of indecision, but part of it is his instinct for appearing bureaucratic. And of course, he has a real love of dates, right? He does things on the anniversary of a particular thing. He loves symmetrical dates. So to have this man murdered, which like many others, I assume this was a murder um, on the 23rd of August, 23, which also is the second, uh, the two month anniversary of Prigozhin's, uh, what I think was an accidental mutiny. Um, all of this is richly symbolic and very Putin-like. So he just didn't want to seem, I mean, irrational. I was looking at your past writing. You wrote in June that Prigozhin accidentally showed Russians they have a choice. What do you think they're being shown today? Well, anybody who thinks that they could repeat what Prigozhin did, but more successfully, is being shown that there will be no mercy, there will be no forgiveness. Right? What was what appeared to be incredible in the in the wake of uh of Prigozhin's mutiny was that he supposedly was uh, allowed to just decamp for Belarus and would be left to live there in peace. Uh, it was very hard to believe. It was very hard to believe that he wasn't, and, and he wasn't going to be arrested and prosecuted for, for his insurgency. Uh, so these things seemed incredible, and they almost would indicate that somebody could attempt a coup and get away with paling. And the message this is sending is no. Uh, if you so much as 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 consider a coup, you may end up dead. It's also, I think, important that it also comes on this. It also came on the same day that Moscow announced that it was removing the general who was in charge of the armed forces in Ukraine, General Suravikin, uh, who was clearly blamed from the very beginning for allowing both the conflict with Prigozhin to escalate and for allowing. Prigozhin to move freely through Russia as he made his way to Moscow. So this also frames both Prigozhin's death and Surovikin's removal as kind of Putin's considered response mm. to what happened two months ago. Yeah, it'll be fascinating to see also what, what that means for the future of, of Wagner. Masha Gessen, we will see what answers we do get. Thank you for joining us with your expertise. Thank you. Speaking of, um, back to Georgia, what we were referencing earlier, America's mayor, booked, fingerprinted, yes, mugshotted. Rudy Giuliani has now joined the other co-defendants at the Fulton County Jail. I'll talk to his attorney who helped negotiate that bond next. As Donald Trump plans his surrender to Fulton County authorities tomorrow, Three of his attorneys who were around him around the election have now surrendered at the Atlanta jail. This was what was known once as the elite strike force, as they called themselves back in November 2020. Sidney Powell on the left, Rudy Giuliani and Jenna Ellis. And this is them today. Three mugshots for three criminal defendants accused of scheming to overturn the 2020 election results in that state. 
Perhaps the most jarring to see, of course, is Giuliani, the former top prosecutor himself, New York mayor, 9-11 hero, and at the time of the 2008 primary, a GOP frontrunner for president. Despite reaching a $150,000 bond agreement, adding to his already existing financial woes and a sobering trip to a second chance bail bonds in Atlanta, Giuliani appeared defiant. You regret attaching your name to the former president. <laughs> I am very, very honored uh, to be involved in this case because this case is a fight for our way of life. This, this, in, this indictment is a travesty. If this could happen to me, who is probably the most prolific prosecutor maybe in American history and the most effective mayor for sure, it can happen to you. How does it feel to be on the other side of the justice system? How does it feel to be on the other side of the justice system? Sorry, don't interrupt me. I'm making a statement. Uh, if they can do this to me, they can do this to you. Joining me now is Rudy Giuliani's Georgia attorney, Brian Tevis. Brian, thank you for being here tonight. I know you just joined this case. Does this mean you are on Giuliani's legal team going forward? Uh, at this point, I was only involved in, in uh, obtaining a bond and negotiating the surrender. I don't know if I'll be in the case going forward or not. That remains to be seen. So how are you? Were you only hired to represent him because you're in Georgia? How did this come to be? Can you kind of walk me through that? Sure. Um, to practice law in any state, you have to be licensed there. So even though mm -hmm. the mayor has counsel from New York, you have to have an attorney from Georgia to be able to appear in court, sign documents, um, negotiate, things like that. Otherwise, you're practicing law without a license. So they had to have local counsel involved to do that. Um, I've been involved in this matter, not necessarily specifically this, but um, the since the phone call in other aspects of it. So I was familiar with it. And of course, the criminal defense realm is a, it's a small circle of attorneys. So we all know each other. There's a lot of intercommunication um, and I'm very familiar with the, the facts of this case. Okay. So it remains to be seen if you'll be part of this legal team taking it to trial. I mean, today we did see from Mr. Giuliani today, he said, I'm being indicted because I'm a lawyer. That was his quote. I mean, obviously he was indicted on 13 charges, including engaging in criminal conspiracies, soliciting a public officer to violate their oath. But is his main defense going to be that, that he's an attorney and therefore should not be charged? Well, I don't want to get beyond the scope of the representation that I'm at right now. And also, it's very premature to be saying, what is the defense going to be? I mean, you look at this indictment, it's very complex. Racketeering in and of itself, um, RICO indictments are very broad. They're very general. They leave themselves open to um, a lot of attacks to be made on the, the document itself. I expect there will be many legal challenges to the indictment on its own before you ever get into evidence or legal strategy or how does it get defended. Um, the first point of attack is always for us to look at the document itself. Does it charge what they think it charges? Is it survivable on its face? Are there errors? Are there problems? Do we need more information to defend it? Um, and I think there's been some discussion about this scheduling order of, you know, could this case go to trial in March? I mean, we would be able to have motions that will go into March before you ever get to reviewing evidence on a case this size. Well, so what's the next legal move? I mean, he has indicated he tried to move it to, to a federal court out of a state court. Is that still his plan? Uh, I don't have information on what the strategy is going to be as far as whether there's going to be a removal or not. I know people are discussing that. That may be one of many different points of attack, um, but I don't know where they're going to go with that yet.
Are you being compensated by Mr. Giuliani for, for your work? Do you have an agreement with him? I don't want to get into any attorney-client privilege or discussions about uh, things that my client and I have discussed. Well, the reason I ask is because our reporting here and his own other attorney in a different case here in New York, Adam Katz, has acknowledged in court that he has financial difficulties. Right. Well, I've gotten this question a hundred times a day um, as we've walked to the courthouse, the jail, everywhere else. And my answer is still the same. I'm not going to disclose that. I don't discuss my clients' finances uh, or arrangements between us in any of my cases. And this one's no different. Well, I guess part of this was, I mean, we just heard from his attorney talking about how, how he couldn't afford certain legal fees that he has. I mean, how was he able to post the bond today? Um, I would have to talk to his people about the finances. I know that they used um, a surety bond, second chance bonding, who posted it. Usually you only have to post a fraction of the percentage mm -hmm and the bonding company will post the rest of that. So um, it, you, when you use a bonding company, you're not posting the $150,000 yourself. But Brian, you're an attorney. I mean, to look at what another attorney is saying in court about a difficulty paying your legal bills, and then Giuliani arrives in Georgia on a private plane today. I mean, who, who's, do you know who, whose plane that was? I don't. I, I met them at my office um, when Mr. Esposito came to my office. That's when we started to work on the case today. I did not meet them at the airport. I have no idea how they arrived. Okay, one other question. Trump is going to, former President Trump is going to be headlining a $100,000 per person fundraiser for Giuliani to help with those aforementioned legal bills. But part of the bond restrictions that were handed down today is that he cannot talk about the case with a co-defendant. Trump is obviously his co-defendant. Can you assure the court that they are not going to be talking about that case? Well, I I, don't, I haven't looked at his bond order, but our bond order says don't discuss things with co-defendants as matters of the case except through counsel. It's not uncommon right. to say don't talk to witnesses, don't talk to other defendants, things like that, except through counsel. So, But can no you assure the, the court that is, they are not going to talk about it? Well, I would assure the court that we, we made this agreement and we'll abide by the bond conditions. And have you spoken to Trump's attorneys? I have not. Brian Tevis, thank you for your time tonight. All right, thank you. And I'm joined now by Andrew Kurtzman, author of Giuliani, The Rise and Tragic Fall of America's Mayor. Andrew, thank you for being here. I mean, we were just talking the other day about the remarkable idea that Giuliani had been indicted. Did you ever think that you'd see a Rudy Giuliani mugshot? No, no, it's an extraordinary sight. And, you know, this was a catastrophic hit to Giuliani's reputation, um, you know, not to mention the fact that he faces the prospect of possibly spending the rest of his life in prison. No, I, I never thought it would come to this. But, you know, what I found interesting watching him speaking to reporters today was the, the first words out of his mouth were, I'm honored to be involved in the fight for justice, right? You were not looking at someone who was scared or, you know, mortified or depressed. You were looking at someone who was, you know, primed for battle. And, you know, Giuliani is uh, is a machine who knows only one speed, which is, you know, shoot to kill. <laughs> and uh, he's fought so many battles over his career, you know, and many of them things that have actually improved life in New York, the battle against the mafia, the battle against Wall Street, the battle to turn around New York City, the battle to save New York after 9-11. Well, this is obviously a different kind of battle. And, you know, he you know, he still sees himself as kind of that young prosecutor always fighting for, always fighting for justice. But, you know, this, 
is his last battle, most likely. And he goes into it not kind of the young Giuliani in his prime, but really someone who's close to 80 years old. In many ways, he's a confused man. He's almost broke. And it, it, in some ways, this is not kind of, I don't know, an epic battle in the true sense. In many ways, he starts this battle a very sad man. Yeah, I mean, he, he's clearly bothered by the unraveling of his legacy. He's certainly trying to defend it. I mean, when he, you're talking about the kind of sense of bravado that he had. This is what he said when he, he left his apartment here in New York this morning. People like to say I'm different. I'm the same Rudy Giuliani that took down the mafia, that made New York City the safest city in America, reduced crime more than any mayor in the history of any city, anywhere. And I'm fighting for justice. I have been from the first moment. I represented Donald Trump. I mean, are you buying the bravado, given you're someone who's covered him for as long as you have? Um, yeah, I am. I think just knowing his psyche after reporting on him for you know, 30 years, it's that his, you know, if you um, looked inside his brain, I think what you would see was someone who felt always that he was right and everyone else was wrong, right? Someone who was crusading for justice, someone who was on the right of, uh, you know, of, of any issue, even when what he was doing was deeply immoral. And I don't see this as kind of putting on a phony act. Like, I think he only has kind of one speed, and that's to fight. And that's, I think that's what you're seeing. And I think that's why it's, I don't know, I'm a little dubious about whether he would flip on Trump. It would just kind of go against everything that I've ever seen uh, Giuliani do. It's like everything with him is a moral battle, even when what he's doing is extremely immoral. I mean, Giuliani has done terrible damage to democracy. He's told lies. He's, you know, he's, he's, He's taken America down a very, very, you know, terrible, terrible path. And yet there is no question in my mind that he thinks he's right and everyone else thinks he's wrong. So that's Sorry. kind of... That's, and everyone else is wrong. That's fascinating, though, what you said there. I mean, Trump is refusing to pay for his legal fees. I mean, it's right. not totally clear how those fees are being paid. His attorney couldn't answer those questions just now. But you don't think that there's, there's anything that could happen where he would flip on Trump or provide incriminating, incriminating information? Well, you know, there's something about the prospect of uh, prison that focuses the mind, right? So I don't think you can possibly say that uh, there's nothing that would make him flip on Trump. But, you know, the, I have not heard, you know, one word of kind of vacillation uh you know, in his in his remarks, I was just you know listening to him on his podcast. It's all the same. It's like injustice, injustice, injustice. Right? He's the victim. Trump is the victim. You know, could he suddenly change his tune completely? You know, I it's I, to me it's unlikely. You never know, though. Something about prison that focuses the mind. Andrew Kurtzman, it's great having you on last week. Great having you back tonight. Thank you. Of course, it was a very busy day at the Fulton County Jail, not just for Rudy Giuliani. We'll show you who else turned themselves in as we look ahead to tomorrow when Donald Trump is going to go through what we believe to be the exact same process. Bill, will there be a mugshot of the former president's big question tonight? Two of the most recognizable people in the Georgia case have about 38 hours and ticking to get there. After today, a federal judge rejected a bid by former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and that former Justice Department official Jeffrey Clark 
to avoid being arrested and booked in Fulton County by a Friday noon deadline to turn themselves in, which now still applies. Caitlin Pollens joins me now from the Fulton County Courthouse in Georgia. Caitlin, I mean, the judge is essentially saying they have no choice but to, to show up now. How did he explain his decision? Well, the judge's decision in this case, Caitlin, is it's a federal judge right now weighing in on this state case that has been brought by the DA. And that judge is saying essentially there's no law right now that the judge can see uh, that would allow him to put on hold what's happening in the state system in the state courts. And what Jeffrey Clark and Mark Meadows had both done is that they had run to the federal courts to say, we were federal officials at the time that we were serving under Donald Trump, that these alleged actions that were now accused of taking part in this racketeering conspiracy related to the 2020 election, we were working on behalf of the president at the time. And so our case should move into federal court. In addition to that, they wanted the court to step in immediately and put everything on hold, potentially even look at dismissing the charges against them and hold off having them arrested. And what the judge did today was say he took on the arrest question specifically and mm -hmm. said, you know what, you are going to have to get on the planes. You are going to have to respond to these uh, these warrants that the the Fonnie Willis, the DA, is threatening here because there is not law here that allows me to put the state courts on hold to have this process go forward. But there is going to be a hearing Monday uh, because this judge is looking at what these two are saying, and at least Meadows specifically, looking at for this case on Monday and looking at whether this case can move from the state court to the federal court. Yeah, I mean, luckily there's a lot of flights to Atlanta. But I mean, in the back and forth between Fonnie Willis, the district attorney, and Mark Meadows and his attorneys, she was basically, basically saying there should be no exceptions for Meadows, given, you know, his boss, former President Trump, is coming to, to surrender. What stood out in the way she was essentially kind of shooting down the arguments that, that Meadows has been making? The main point that the DA Fonnie Willis said in two filings today was essentially what Mark Meadows was doing was political activity. And even he had made that argument previously when he was trying to escape uh, responding to House subpoenas in their own investigation around this area, 20, the 2020 election and his actions there. And she essentially was saying, if he wants to claim he was working as a federal official at, at the time, he's trying that in court, but we believe what he was doing for Donald Trump was political activity and thus shouldn't get this allowance that he can have there. Uh, and there were two quotes that she wrote in her filings about Meadows and Clark. The hardship facing the defendant is no different than any other criminal defendant charged with a crime, including co-defendants who have either already surrendered or have agreed to do to so surrender. And then Fonnie Willis also wrote about Jeffrey Clark. The defendant seeks to avoid the inconvenience and unpleasantness of being arrested or subject to the mandatory state criminal process, but provides this court no legal basis to justify those ends, making those arguments at a time that shadow what Donald Trump could potentially be wanting to make in the future as well and what the DA would have to defend against. We'll see what he does tomorrow and going forward. Caitlin Polance, thank you. And back to our big breaking story this hour. Russia says Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin, who led that mutiny just two months ago, was on that plane that crashed and burned today. The one-time Putin ally turned adversary, reportedly dead. The former CIA director will join me with his thoughts next. We're following today's fiery plane crash in Russia. 
where officials say there that the mercenary leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, was on board that plane that crashed that you see. Wagner's social media channel says the mercenary leader is dead. Of course, waiting on more confirmation tonight. But remember, two months ago, he led an armed rebellion trying to overthrow Putin's Moscow. Joining me now, Leon Panetta, the former defense secretary and CIA director under President Obama. And Mr. Secretary, thank you for joining me. I should note, you know, the White House has not been able to confirm Prigozhin's death, but they said they're not surprised if it is true. You know, can you just kind of walk us through what does that look like tonight? How are they trying to confirm details like that, do you think? Well, it, it's obvious they'd have to use other sources to try to find out uh, exactly uh, what happened and also uh, whether Prigozhin is in fact dead. Uh, look, there's, for those of us who've dealt with intelligence, uh, this, this is not a surprising story. Uh, you know, we followed Putin before. Uh, this is right out of Putin's playbook. Uh, if you cross him, you're going to pay with your life. Uh, and that's what happened to Prigozhin. And, I mean, Wagner's mercenaries have not just been tracked in Ukraine. I mean, also Syria, the Central African Republic, Sudan, Libya. What is his death and the sidelining of another top general that was in Ukraine, what does that mean for the group going forward, do you think? Well, I think it's likely that Russia is going to try to make a move to take over the Wagner group uh, and take control of it. Uh, I think uh, having now acted against Prigozhin, uh, I think they're going to be very concerned about uh, allowing these guys basically to continue to operate on their own. So I would not be, a, I would not be surprised. Uh, if they assert control over the Wagner Group in Africa, in Asia, and wherever else they may be located. Uh, and for that matter, uh, I think uh, those in the Wagner Group, group uh, have got to worry about their own lives as well. Mm-hmm. And not just beyond what, what it means for the future of them, what does it mean for the future of Russia, do you think, and for, for Putin's future? I mean, the elections in Russia, I should say, elections are just ahead in March 2024. I mean, what does this mean if you're an everyday Russian watching this playing out tonight? I I think you have to say that uh, there's still a a lot of instability in Russia. I mean, the the fact that uh, Putin uh, had a coup two months ago, uh, probably the biggest threat to his power in 23 years, uh, there's no question that uh, it reflected weakness uh, on Putin's part. Uh, he's now trying to assert control. Uh, but it's also clear that Prokoshin had uh, a lot of friends uh, in Russia as well, and a lot of Russians who supported him. Uh, and so there's going to be some turmoil uh, in the short term. Uh, and when whenever there's this kind of turmoil, uh, I think it... Uh, it does undermine Putin's ability uh, to show strength. Uh, and and I, I, I have a sense that uh, it's going to cause him to kind of rethink what's, what's going on in Ukraine as well. We'll see what it does to that thinking going forward for that. Secretary Panetta, thank you for joining me tonight. Thank you. And when we return, the mugshots that will undoubtedly go down in American history as Trump's co-defendants have turned themselves in one by one by one. The Fulton County Jail, center state, as nine of the 19 defendants have surrendered, been fingerprinted, and yes, 
had their mugshots taken. Here's Rudy Giuliani, once known for taking down New York mobsters, now facing the same RICO charges that he pioneered. Smiling in hers is Jenna Ellis, who back in 2020 called herself a member of the elite strike force working to protect the Constitution. And then there's Sidney Powell, who claimed that voting machines featured software created at the direction of the long-dead Venezuelan president, Hugo Chavez. The list continues with Kenneth Cheeseborough, the architect of Trump's campaign fake electors plot, Kathy Latham, who served as a fake elector and allegedly signed paperwork claiming that Trump had won the state of Georgia when he did not. That's followed by David Schaefer, pinning his involvement now in that fake elector scheme on former President Trump. And Ray Smith, who falsely claimed that felons and dead people voted during a Georgia Senate hearing. Lest we forget, John Eastman, an attorney that advised former President Trump on how to disrupt the 2020 election results, even though he himself was skeptical of the legality of what he was pushing. And Scott Hall, a pro-Trump poll watcher who spent hours inside a restricted area of the Coffee County Elections Office as voting systems were breached. Ten more mugshots, though, to potentially come. And, of course, one big question is whether or not there will be one for the former president when he goes to Fulton County tomorrow. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. CNN Primetime with Abby Phillips starts right now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.